we're in our second week of ordinary time. And, um, you know, when ordinary time usually comes, I usually breathe a sigh of relief. Why is that? Well, there's a certain intensity in our six month journey, six ish month, six ish month journey from Advent to Pentecost that we just um, is in our rearview mirror now. So we're following along the life of Jesus during that time from birth all the way to ascension. So I find like to stay engaged from Advent to Pentecost, it requires real work. It requires uh, elbow grease. It can be spiritually demanding. It's kind of like a training like an athlete would. It can be rigorous. Um, but as if the normal rigors of that period of time, Advent to Pentecost, as if they weren't rigorous enough, a pandemic comes on us. And during Lent, I mean, that's kind of an, are you kidding me? Heightening and underscoring all those Lenten themes, fasting, deprivation, uh, but also the cult of generosity, a repentance, contemplation. So uh, Lent was sort of poignant to the point of painful, I think. Uh, we all got more than we bargained for in Lent 2020. I think it's fair to say. Then, in the latter days of Eastertide, in Pentecost Sunday, we saw yet again the evils and injustice of racism, treating someone differently because of the color of their skin and their culture. So that cancer in our country, which is so very alive, reared its head uh, yet again. So, so far, guys, I know about you, but 2020 is one for the books. And if you take it based off circumstances alone, uh, it's not been a good year. It's been a terrible year so far. So I only feel mild relief, if at all, in arriving at ordinary time. And I'm kind of anticipating that this is going to be, I mean, the weirdness and the oddness and the strangeness and surreality is just going to continue in 2020, I think. But there is one thing about ordinary time that remains the same. And that is this. Um, it is a season where we're called to live into the things that we learned and gleaned in the Advent to Pentecost journey. So it is a season, you'll notice the color for ordinary time, which I have a stole on, you could tell, the color is green because this season focuses on growth. That's what ordinary time is all about. It's time to learn from, digest, and chew on what we've been through the last six months. And there's plenty uh, to chew on and digest and think through there. So not a bad season to go, okay, Lord, what have you been teaching me? How can I live it out? You know, put it into praxis. Lord, what are you teaching us? How do we live that out? So it's a time for growth. It's time for praxis. Um, that aspect of ordinary time, I don't think could be more timely pointed than this year. So it's kind of the so what. It's a season. If you've just done this big journey, what's the so what now? How do you want to grow into that? This morning, so that's just a bit about ordinary time and observations about that. Uh, this morning, much to your relief, this will be a homily. This will not be a 30-minute sermon. We're going to focus on Matthew 9, uh, 35 through 10.1. So just a chunk of the passage that Stephen just read, not the whole thing. I'm going to dive straight into that uh, and just walk, walk this out together. So it describes Jesus going out through, uh, it says throughout all the cities and villages. And these are the three key words of the actions that he's taking. Teaching, proclaiming, healing. Okay, teaching, proclaiming proclaiming healing. He's journeying presumably all around Capernaum, okay? So there's a wide ranging scope for his journeys here. That's something for us to note. The other is that I want you to observe how holistic Jesus's mission is. It's one of restoration, 
Um, it's one of proclaiming the kingdom of God, that it's at hand. That's the scriptural language. So this ministry is a picture of how things should be. This is a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like when it's enacted and lived out. So these are heavenly glimpses of a new heaven and a new earth. No disease, no more tears, restored human beings. Uh, it's sort of turning the fall in Genesis 3 on its head. So Jesus is doing reclamation work. He's doing ransoming work. And in this case, he's ransoming captives from physical suffering. Says that he's healing, he healed every disease and every affliction. Okay? Now, our Lord, what I want us to uh, catch from this, Jesus encountered many, many forms of sickness and ailments. This probably wasn't for the faint of heart. I mean, think of leprosy. Um, think of that was a dominant disease in that day and age. That's one of the things Jesus saw sort of up close and personal. He saw the physical suffering of many, many people, probably more uh, than most of us come in contact with, unless you happen to be in the medical field or relief work or social worker or, you know, wartime medic. He saw a lot of suffering, a lot of illness, and he beheld and witnessed so much. So this is literally that not just a picture. This is Christ, the great physician, you know, who's basically seen it all. But rather than being repelled by it or squeamish about it, Jesus moves towards those who suffer. He draws near to us in our suffering. We know this, but I just want to underscore this in this, uh, in this aspect. Again, healing all these diseases and all these ailments. He saw a lot, and he didn't draw back. He did just the contrary. He moved forward. Now, he's not just doing that. That's one thing he's doing. He's also teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. So observe with me how Jesus exercises his authority in just this one verse. This is just verse 35 at this point. Word and deed. Word and deed. There is a holism here. Teaching, proclaiming, healing. Jesus' example isn't proclamation without action. Okay, which the American Evangelical Church has sometimes been very guilty of. Okay, all about proclamation, but we don't do the action thing. We'll save your soul, but eh, your, your body and the rest of that stuff, that's kind of up to you. But neither is Jesus advocating action without true proclamation. That was the social gospel movement of, late, of the 20th century, which was guilty of, of extremes there too. Action, but not necessarily true proclamation. So Jesus consistently exercises his authority in word and deed in service of others. And as a church, that is our call too, to be about the ministry and mission of word and of deed. So it comes as no surprise to me then uh, when there's this specific mention of Jesus' compassion. It says he had compassion on the crowds. This is actually a very moving picture of Jesus. There's a special word here for compassion and it's almost always connected with Jesus in the New Testament. And it's hard because there's no single English word that really gets at it at the full meeting. But it's a very visceral response, literally like a gut reaction Jesus has. Best rendering I've seen of it is saying like his heart went out to them. Okay, So it's a very visceral, strong reaction. And in almost every case in the New Testament, when we see Jesus connected to this word for compassion, it is a very deep emotion that translates into action. Again, word 
and D. So it's not just a strong emotion that you feel and then passes in time. Uh, this picture is Jesus's compassion enacted, okay? Word and deed. The reason for his compassion, the reason given here, because he saw that the crowds were like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, no shepherd in Israel, which this is a very sad statement. It's a very egregious statement. Um, very, very sad. Uh, I've talked at length about uh, on Good Shepherd Sunday about that picture of Jesus as Good Shepherd. Ellen recently did a godly play lesson on the Good Shepherd. I invite you to revisit those. I can't fully dive into those, what that means, but I can say just a little bit about it. God sees the failure of Israel's own shepherds. Uh, the religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Jesus is highlighting that failure of leadership, making no bones about it. He's going to do something about it. This flock doesn't have guidance, doesn't have care, and doesn't have protection. It says they're harassed and helpless. Um, it carries with it the notion also of they're sort of aimless and also vulnerable to uh, predators, those kind of proverbial wolves that we talked about in Good Shepherd Sunday, some of which were in their midst and supposed to be leading them. So these are the lost sheep of Israel, okay? The lost sheep, the neglected ones. Now God himself, Jesus is going to be their good shepherd and he's going to invite his disciples to take on that shepherd role too and us as well. So Jesus switches metaphors here he begins to talk about the harvest, that famous line. We all know that the harvest is plentiful. The labor, laborers are few. On the surface, it's really clear, right? The mission field, ever thought about that language, right? A field for harvest. The mission field is the world. Uh, the harvest are the converts and, and laborers. That's us. Okay, fair enough. But there's two other features here I don't want us to miss out on. One is that Jesus is highlighting there's an actual lack of workers. He's saying there's a big harvest, but there's not enough people to carry it out. He thinks more are needed. He's also saying there's a degree of urgency here. Um, harvests don't last forever. Seasons and weather change. Ripe fruit eventually will rot. So there's a timeliness and, in fact, even an urgency to bring in the harvest so it doesn't rot or die away. So this doesn't leave us room for complacency. I mean, this is Jesus as he often does, turning up the heat to instill in us some sense of urgency. He's saying, get in the game, folks. There's a harvest of human souls. I'm calling you to be fishers of people, et cetera, et cetera. I think the subtext here is really clear. Uh, even though the metaphor has changed here a little bit, Jesus is looking for more shepherds. He's looking for more shepherds. And he's also looking to and expecting that the flock will grow. So looking for shepherds and looking to enlarge the flock. That's why he says to his disciples, earnestly ask the Lord of the harvest, you know who that is, to send out laborers for this harvest, which is what happens, beginning with God's own Israel, and then later on the Gentiles. So the mission, notice this, the mission begins in God's house. Okay, the mission begins there, the transformation begins there, and the call begins there before it's carried out to others. I think that's worth noting, because God begins that work, which is a work of the heart, individually, corporately, in his people. And it's not until that we sort of get that, that then we have something to actually carry out into the world in mission. So in just a few verses, 35 through 38, Jesus lays the groundwork and the pattern uh, for gospel work for the disciples. Basically, he shows them how it's done. He models it for them. And guess what? You know what he does after that? He throws them the keys to the car. 
That's pretty bold and trusting. Uh, and mission is the result. And that's the first several verses of chapter 10, which we won't get into. So having, having already chosen the 12, and they obviously symbolize uh, the 12 sons of Jacob became the 12 tribes of Israel, meaning the entire nation. Okay, that's the purpose of the 12 disciples. It says he, quote, called to him the 12. I think that's interesting language. Now, at this point, this isn't the initial gathering of the 12. This is the first time he said, these are the 12 and I'm calling you. Uh, this isn't that initial gathering. This is something different. Okay? But he called to him the 12 disciples. I love this language. And though this seems obvious, this just was striking to me. Um, their ministry is it's gathered around Jesus. Okay, He is the focal point, and they're gathered around that. So their work orbits around him. Their ministry orients around him. Their ministry and what they're going to do is defined by their proximity and their relationship with him. So he called to him these 12. Having called them to himself, again, important language, he equips them with spiritual authority to cast out evil spirits, to heal, even to raise the dead. Get that. So this spiritual authority, spoken of here is not ornamental. It is not secondary. It is absolutely essential. Spiritual authority, the way it works in the scriptures, it's always bestowed. It's always given in the scriptures, and it's the only basis for the disciples' work. No different for us, right? We don't or we shouldn't go out on mission without the assurance of and the reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit. That's cart before horse syndrome. So he gives them his authority, shares it with them, if you will. I'm going to put it that way. Even Judas, which, again, mind-blowing. Um, you could rightly say this is their ordination, for this is you know, essentially what happens when we ordain anyone. It's the passing on and the bestowing of spiritual authority. And in uh, chapter 10, 2, these disciples are identified this way, and it lists them. The names of the 12 apostles, to catch that switch, are these. Apostles, doesn't call them disciples, calls them apostles, okay? Apostles are the sent out ones. They're commissioned, sent out on mission. So they're Jesus's emissaries. They are Jesus's ambassadors in the world. So when we read this, and this is just a really basic level, but I just I want us to get this. When we read this, we are absolutely supposed to see the continuity between Jesus's ministry and the disciples' ministry. It's sort of that like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. The family resemblance is to be an inherited mission that just carries over. So Jesus gathers and cares for the sheep. Guess what? The disciples, apostles, called the same task. Jesus goes out on a restorative mission of word and deed, teaching, proclaiming, healing. Guess what? The apostles live out that restorative mission of word and deed too, teaching, proclaiming, healing, blessing, casting out demons, raising people from the dead. They follow in Jesus's footsteps, doing restorative reclamation, kingdom gospel work. That is a good picture of the holism of the church's mission, which is our mission. So the mission of Jesus, God's mission, which really began back in Genesis 1 and 2, if you want to track it back that far, it's the same mission he entrusted to the apostles, it's the same one that we're a part of today, okay? Now, this seems basic, I know. You're probably going, yeah, I get that. I know that. Here's where I want to close and, and 
give some observations and comments. God's mission in the world, it hasn't changed and it hasn't evolved, okay? I think the case is maybe we as the church have just ignored or neglected or forgotten what we're supposed to be about. Let me give you some examples, some of which I've already talked about. Uh, first, in mission, word and deed were never meant to be separated. Never. So in other words, I can't profess to love and save your soul, okay? For Jesus, while I turn a blind eye to your suffering, bodily or otherwise, can't do it. That's actually the heresy of dualism, if you want to get into it. But there's other problems with it, but that's just one. Um, let me give you an example of that. Uh, after having laid out the great commandment where Jesus says, love God, follow who you are, love your neighbors yourself. After that, someone asked Jesus, well, then who's my neighbor? Jesus answered that with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you know the story. And at the end of it, Jesus asked, so who is the neighbor to the man? And the person who asked the original question was the one who, has, the one who had mercy on him and cared for the wounded man. Jesus says, you're right. So that teaches us word and deed were never meant to be separated. Um, people sometimes look at the church in mission and say talk is cheap. And truthfully, that's a fair criticism at times. So we're to be about proclamation and action. Proclamation and action. So our mission is holistic in that sense. Word and deed, never meant to be separated. That's the first point. Second point related to this passage, we're also on mission to set captives free, okay? These instances in this passage, we see demonic oppression, we see disease. Those are the top kind of the biggies, both of which I believe in and are still active today, obviously. The larger theme of those though, are freedom, restoration and healing. This is on earth as in heaven, one of those things. That's the kind of work we're to be about. So when we see bondage and when we see oppression, we're to put skin in the game and we're to get to work, okay? So we're also on a mission to set captives free from demonic oppression, yes, disease, yes. And you can make a lot longer list than that. But the point is when we see areas of bondage and oppression where people are not free, we work unto their freedom and their dignity. So that's the second piece. Final thing to say. Uh, the right exercise of our spiritual authority. What I mean is us fully owning that, what we're called to do, living into that outward mission and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm kind of talking about. The right exercise of spiritual authority on mission brings about life, and it brings about restoration, and it brings about redemption, okay? Those are the marks of kingdom work and what we're to be about. They bring about wholeness. They bring about that Old Testament sense of shalom, were to be about that work. In mission, we're seeking to honor and restore and mend the broken image of God in human beings by the healing work of Jesus, the great physician. And though the forces of darkness oppose us at every turn, which they do, he is our hope and he is our strength, that great shepherd of the sheep. So that remarkable work that he has done in us we humbly try to share with others. That is a good news worth proclaiming. That is good news worth embodying. That is good news worth enacting. That is good news worth living out in word and deed with all of who we are.
Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.